Aliens and flying saucers. Yo, yo, welcome to the 61st episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master from the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Chris Nashawadi, EW's film critic and the author of Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. And the focus of this podcast is movie reviews. What's a critic looking for? When is it okay to slam, to praise? Can one grade, say, Batman versus Superman in The Shape of Water on the same scales? We're also going to dig deep into Caddyshack, a movie I've actually never seen, and how Chris was able to probe the minds of men like Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. So get your popcorn, try and use your movie pass, it won't work, and let's do it with two writers, Sling and Yang. Uh, Chris, so first of all, thank you very much for doing this. As you noted in our in our pre-recording dialogue, you are actually you asked me if I felt nostalgic because of the two one two five two two phone number, which is uh, when I was at Sports Illustrated. It was it was obviously two one two five two two. Does working for a magazine still feel like working for a magazine? If that makes sense, does it still? Do you know what I mean? Does it still feel like working for a magazine? I know exactly what you mean. And it, it does and it doesn't. I mean, obviously, uh, it's, it's a different world with magazines these days. We actually still, you know, at Entertainment Weekly, we still put on a print magazine. So there is that. Um, but, you know, that's, that's such a, a small fraction now of, of what you actually do. I mean, you're sort of feeding the website uh, constantly and tweeting constantly. Um, obviously, you know, in the golden age of magazines, you had unlimited budgets to sort of travel around and find stories and all of that. So, and that's sort of gone just with the economy of, of magazines. So um, it feels like a different world, but um, I still am the type of person who reads the actual physical New York Times and, and who, who likes to read magazines on the train. And so I'm glad that I'm still a part of that heritage in a way. Do you still get jazz seeing your name in a magazine? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Um, unless it's unless it's a story that I later realized had a had a mistake in it, oh, uh, then I'd love to scrub it off. But um, yeah, in general, I do. I I love having a byline. I, you know, I, I've often thought about moving over to editing. You know, as as I have a family now and and, and kids, and and so you know, it would certainly make my hours more predictable. Um, but I would miss having a byline. To be completely honest with you, right? I'm going to start with a. Uh with a review that you did not write, right? which is kind of an untraditional way here. Um, I teach journalism at a school out here in Southern California called Chapman, and I always have them read things that I really like. And there's a review that I consider, in my head, the gold standard of all film reviews uh, ever written, which is kind of silly, but for me. And it was Roger Ebert, who obviously is legendary in the, in the medium, June 23rd, 2009, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. And... Oh, terrific. Okay. His lead, I just want to read you his lead. His lead is Transformers Revenge of the Fallen is a horrible experience of unbearable length, briefly punctuated by three or four amusing moments. One of these involves a dog-like robot humping the leg of a heroine. Sets with the meager joys. <laughs> if you want to save yourself the ticket price, go into the kitchen, cue up a male choir singing the music of hell, and get a kid to start banging pots and pans together. Then close your eyes and use your imagination. Now, I just read your review of Justice League. 
Okay. Which, which I consider to be one of the worst films I've ever seen. And okay. I, I thought your review was great. And you liked it more than I did, which isn't to say you liked it. But I think you gave it like a C plus and you seemed okay with it. It seems like the joy of writing about a really, 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 really bad movie is pretty high. Uh, it's the best part of the job. It really is. It honestly, I mean, other than seeing movies for free, writing a pan is, um, I mean, you don't go out of your way to pan movies that are just, you know, that are decent, but when you truly find a movie that is insulting and, and a waste of time and, um, just you rolling your eyes the whole time, there is no greater joy than going back to your desk and sitting at your computer and just writing a takedown. Um, you know, you just want to warn the world, uh, of just how terrible it is. And it's really, you know, to me, those are the, those are the reviews that separate really good critics from really mediocre critics. Cause if you can write a great pan as re as Ebert did in that one, um, you know, it, that, that takes, that takes some skill, I think. What is the key and what are the key elements to writing a really good pan of a movie? I think you have to tap into, you got to avoid cliches, first of all, because, you know, we've all, you've all read the review that says like, that's two hours of my life I'll never have back. You know what I mean? Or something like that. You got to avoid the cliches and you got to find a way to sort of convey the, just the, the artlessness of it. You know what I mean? It's, you have to let the movie hang itself. If that means quoting a particularly crappy line of dialogue or a particularly ineptly shot scene, you can't be seen as being cruel or just mean. You need to let the film sort of criticize itself. Do you know what I mean? I do. Is there a temptation to tee off where you need restraint? Like are, I imagine in your, in your profession, sometimes really shitty movies, do they offend, like, does it offend you in a way? Does it offend you when someone oh, puts forward? All right, all right, tell me why. Why does it offend you? Why the offense? Because, I mean, I, look, there are, it's, it's, it's not that hard. I don't think it's that hard to make a competent film. Um, you know, they're, they're, I see something like 300 movies a year as part of my job. And, you know, most of them are, you know, at least in focus, you can't see a boom mic in the top of the the frame, um, but but some of them are just so badly made and insulting to the audience, where the plots just don't make sense. And it's it it you know you, I don't spend money to see these movies, but someone's paying twelve fifteen dollars to see this movie. You have to warn people away from this, and I just think that when someone really takes the amount of money it takes to make a movie and just craps all over the screen and shoots it in a way that looks like it was made on wax paper instead of, you know, actual film stock. You gotta, you gotta call them out on it. You gotta wrap their knuckles and make sure that, uh, that they get it right next time or there, if there is a next time. Right, so what's the worst movie you've ever reviewed? I can accept a, a movie that is, is meant to be cruddy, uh, and, and find sure. The, the art in it, right? I love, I love B movies, drive-in movies. I just, I love them. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up on them. To me, what's more, what's more, uh, just galling is uh, 
like an, an art film that other critics are just raving about uh, and they think is terrific and uh, and I just think is utter crap. Um, like I'm thinking about, you know, uh, Lars von Trier, the director, he, he put out two movies a couple years ago, Nymphomaniac Part 1 and Nymphomaniac Part 2. And this is a guy who's like the toast of film festivals and he's, he's just sort of seen as, as this critic's darling. And, and I just sat through both of these movies and was so, it was just like the emperor's not wearing any clothes. You know what I mean? So it, it wasn't like a, necessarily the, I wasn't marching in lockstep with all the other critics, but to me, those movies that critics love that are really just terrible, you have a duty to sort of tell the truth about. So your lead for um, your lead, I just found Lars von Trier's latest art house provocation, Nymphomaniac, Volume One, is a dirty movie that isn't nearly as scandalous as it thinks it is. In fact, it's both exhausting and laughable in its eagerness to shock. That's the bad news. The worst news is that Volume Two comes out next month. <laughs> I really like. I, I really, really like the way you write, and I love um, because I love film critics like you, like Ebert, who are very nuanced in their words. Like you don't over adjective it. You don't sort of play it out. It's like this movie is bad. This director did a bad job. Here's why. I'm going to lay it out for you. I'm going to paint the picture, but I'm not going to overdo it. And I think that's a really, that's a pretty impressive way to write uh, reviews. Well, I actually have to say, I'm, I, first of all, I'm completely flattered that you would include me in the same sentence as Ebert, but like, cause I, I mean, he is in a way sort of always been my role model. I, I, you know, the first film critic I ever sort of was aware of was, was Roger Ebert. You know, I, I would watch uh, not just Siskel and Ebert, but before that, the, the PBS one, Sneak Previews, when I was a kid. My brother and I would watch that on the black and white TV in our, in our bedroom. And uh, so that was my first exposure to, to, you know, the fact that being a movie critic was even a job. Um, and I just like the thing I think that makes Ebert so great is that he doesn't write for the sort of intellectual set. He is writing for everyone, and he is, even with films that are sort of artier, he, he writes in a way that's, that's very understandable to everyone. And, you know, I mean, I write for Entertainment Weekly, and our, our audience is, is, you know, is really broad. So I think it's important to take a very um, honest, honest language, honest verdicts, uh, don't show off too much. Um, and that's just always been my philosophy, but it comes from him for sure. Do you have different expectations? All right, could you theoretically give The Shape of Water, mm -hmm. I think even people who did not like that film would say it is a factually better movie, better constructed, better acted than Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, right? Just to use an example here. Um, sure. Do expectations play into reviews? Meaning... Batman vs. Superman is a big wad of shit, but we all know it's not going to be great. So do you give it, are you grading it and reviewing it on a different scale than you are reviewing a, you know, Guillermo del Toro movie that's aiming for something? Yes, absolutely. This is the short answer to that. Um, you know, I think there's, if I'm going to see a Martin Scorsese movie that is a swing and a miss for him, you know, that's, you know, let's say you're bringing out the dead. Okay. That's a Scorsese movie that just, I, I didn't think really worked. Okay. So that might movie might get like a C whereas um, a really good Jason Statham action movie, I might give a B plus or an A minus. And so someone would say to me, how can you give, you know, a Jason Statham movie, a better grade than any Mark. And it's all based on 
expectations, the genre it's in. You know, I, I think that um, on a good day, a really good horror movie can be better than a mediocre movie by Wes Anderson. You know, I just, I just think that. And I, I, I think um, not everyone, because they're making movies artfully, deserves a free pass. In fact, they have a higher bar to clear. Interesting. Do you feel like in your industry there's an understanding of that, or do people are people bothered by this sort of double standard? You've brought up the, the superhero movies a couple times now, and I think that's an important thing to focus on for a second because that's so much of what we review now, and that's so much of the traffic uh, that we get online, and those are the, the sort of the most passionate uh, comments that we get and all of that. And, and it's funny. You can... I mean, I think empirically, the Marvel movies have been better than the DC movies, you know, so mm-hmm. far. Um, but when we give a good grade or a good review, a positive review to a Marvel movie, we get like death threats online from people who are DC fans and saying that we're on the take from Marvel and they actually pay us money to write positive reviews. And why are we always slamming on DC movies and, and vice versa? So it's, it's really, you, you can't win and it's probably best not to read any of the comments. I mean, I, I, I sort of have a hard to, it's easy to say, um, and it's, it's harder to do, uh, but I really try not to engage in that back and forth because no good can come from it. Right. That makes sense. Um, what is your – I feel like a lot of people, myself included, don't totally know the process of reviewing film. Like um, how does this happen as far as how far in advance yeah. are you seeing the movies? What do you – when you're watching the movies, what are you looking for? What do you have with you? Blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, you know, it, it depends. Obviously, uh, we'll, we'll see the movies ahead of everyone else because we've got to get the review out in time before, you know, when, when it's coming out. So with most movies, that means seeing the movie probably a week before it comes out. And, you know, most of the movie studio, I'm based in New York, and most of the movie studios, you know, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, all of that, they have screening rooms in midtown Manhattan where the critics usually go to see the movies. If they're bigger movies that they're putting out, sometimes they do it at a multiplex in Midtown on 42nd Street. And it, so we'll go to the, the screenings and we'll, we'll watch the movie and it's usually just a room full of critics, um, you know, somewhere between like, usually like 10 and 30 critics. Do you know and, everyone uh, there? Do you know almost everyone More there? or less. If I, if I don't, um, yeah, I mean, you see the same faces over and over again. I'm not like the, the, the most chummy guy, you know, I'm not looking... To, uh, I'm, I'm there to watch the movie and get out. I'm not a member of the New York Film Critics Circle. Uh, I just, I'm not like a real joiner. I don't like to talk to other critics after I watch the movie. Some of them sort of hang out in the, in the lobby and, and discuss it. I'm, I'm just not that guy. I just want to, you know, uh, take my notes and get back to my desk and, and write it while it's fresh. Wait, I'm going to um, ask you a really stupid question. Um, when you watch, yeah. when you go to these movies, are they giving you popcorn? Sometimes I, I no, generally no. But there is an occasional like big one, like a big. They'll make a big production out of it where they'll give you like popcorn. I, I, I in theory, I, I try not to even take the popcorn because I just feel like that's they're trying to butter me up, literally, yeah. uh, uh-huh. to, to give their to give their movie a more uh, positive review. So I try to. It's like, you know, it's like. Um, I think it was in Woodward and Bernstein. They they said that they never vote. They did. They wouldn't vote in elections because they they felt like that 
it wasn't, you know, it was too partisan a thing to do. Um, I sort of feel like that way with the popcorn. It's my, it's my little stand that I take. Yeah, I like that. You go, you're in this room. Yep. What are you doing? Yeah. You you take some notes, you bring your reporter's notebook, you take some notes, um, and you, and you watch the movie and, and that's, that's it. You know, I mean, it's, and you go back and you, you hash out the review. It's, it's it, with entertainment weekly, there can be different size reviews. And, and, and so if, if you really have a lot to say about the movie, you can go to your editor and say like, I think this should be sort of a longer take or, you know, this, this, I don't have a lot to say about this movie. It can be a pretty short review. Um, if it's online, you can go as long as you want because there is no word count online. Um, and, and, and really that's it. You know, I'm doing, I'm seeing and reviewing about five or six movies a week. Um, and, and there, you know, the problem is when you go to like a film festival um, like Sundance in January, a lot of those movies that you see, they don't come out for eight, eight or nine months. Right. So um, you probably have to see them again closer to, to release just to, to get a refresher course on it. All right. When you're sitting there in the theater and you're watching a movie, um, what are you taking notes on? Like, what are you, what are you paying attention to? Well, I'm I'm sort of a I, I'm a sort of take I think I take more notes than most people. I, I want to know like the plot like plot twists, uh, names, details, but also just general impressions. You know what I mean? If 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 this movie if the scene is reminiscent of another movie, and I want to write that down so I don't forget. If there's a great line of dialogue, I want to write that down. Uh, the hero, like what's I want to try to capture what he really looks like and sounds like and, and capture like his essence. So when I go down to, to, to go back to write the review, I have a, a, like a, a very fresh, clever thing to say about, about the character. Um, you don't want to depend on your memory too much, especially when you're seeing so many movies. Are you quoting dialogue? Like, are you writing down lines and do you, and how important is if it? It's a, if it's a, only if it's only if it's a great line, you know what I mean? If it's like, you know, if, if you were, if you were, you know, sitting in Terminator in 1984 and it came out and, and you know, I'll be back came down, then, then, then you'll, you write that down, you right. know, but um, I, I don't, as a, as a rule, I don't want to, you know, I'm not taking shorthand on the whole movie. So if it's a great line, I'll copy that down, um, you know, and, if it makes sense to use it in the review, I will. Actually, one of the, one of the best publicists I've ever dealt with, I won't name her name, but she's a boxing publicist. And, and what she always used to do that I always found impressive is she, she would call you and she'd be like, look, Jeff, I have to pitch this story. I know it's not really good, but I kind of have to do it. But next week I'm going to have something really good for you. And it gave her real credibility. You know, like there was real credibility mm-hmm. with this woman because she was very honest and upfront with you. And I wonder when you're heading into a movie do the people involved ever acknowledge that it's not that good? Were they ever asked for some leniency or sympathy or an understanding at least that it just didn't work out the way they wanted it to? Um, generally, no. I mean, there are a couple that have been in the business long enough where you can say to them, like, do I need to see this? You know, is this something I should see? And they might say, is this something I need to see for the magazine? And they can say like, well, you know, you can just judge by their tone, you know, if they hem and haw, or if they say like, you really need to see this in the theater. Uh, you need to see this. Um, Cause sometimes they'll send you a link of the movie, especially the smaller independent films that you can watch on your computer. I prefer not to do that. Um, but uh, sometimes they'll say like, you should really see this on the big screen. Or sometimes they'll be like, you know what? Like, 
you might not like this one, but it is for a certain kind of audience or, you know, they sort of, um, they try to gauge your expectations. Let's, let's put it that way. The, the good ones will. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not going to affect your opinion. I don't think, um, maybe it would affect someone's, but I, I you know, it's, it's not, you have to be honest, you know? Right. The, the, the thing I, I'm always fascinated by, you know, it, in a way it brings me great joy. I don't even know why is when, um, you'll see like Will Smith promoting uh suicide squad with Margot Robbie mm. and they're sitting mm. across from, and they're talking about what, how rewarding it was. And it was a great project and blah, blah, blah. They have to know the movie isn't good at that point. Correct. Or no. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, they're actors too. I mean, you know, they have to sell it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't take any of that stuff. I don't take any of that stuff seriously. I, I don't see how anyone c- couldn't see through that. Um, every time uh, any of these actors appear on, you know, Jimmy Fallon or Kimmel or whatever, um, you know, it was always the, the most rewarding experience I've ever had. And, or, you know, I'm really proud of this one. You know what I mean? And it's just, there's no, it's just, it's, it's baloney. It's really, it's just, um, it's what you have to do to sell. Do you enjoy the people of Hollywood? I know that may sound kind of broad, but, but you know, it's like, uh, it's like, I look back and I say, did I enjoy major league baseball players? And I think overall the answer was not really like, I didn't find them that curious and they're kind of hyper-focused and that was fine. But would I want to hang out with a bunch of ball players at my house for dinner? Definitely not. Like in this world that you occupy, do you enjoy the people? Um, some of them, for sure. Some of them. I mean, I, you know, I, I, um, I've only been reviewing movies full time. I mean, I've always kept a hand in it, but, but full time, uh, you know, as, as like the hundred percent part of my job for the past, I don't know, six years mm-hmm. before that in my 25 years at Entertainment Weekly, I was writing a lot of features where I would, you know, fly around and go to movie sets and interview celebrities and, and, and write profiles of them. And that's when I, you know, being a critic is a really sort of isolate, you know, it's very isolated. You don't really mingle too much with, with the talent, you know? Uh, but when you're doing these profiles, you, you really, get to sit down and spend some real time with people. And for the most part, it felt like they're perfectly pleasant. They're being good because they need you to write a positive piece on them, or that's what they're trying to do. As far as like, you know, would I really want to hang out with any of these people if they weren't famous? Maybe like 8%. I mean, if you interviewed someone like, um, Harold Ramis, let's say, you know, the director of Vacation and Caddyshack, you know, who I interviewed for the book on Caddyshack that I just wrote. He is one of the the rare people where he was just a joy to talk to. You know what I mean? He was smart. He was funny. He had great stories. Um, you just didn't want to get off the phone with him. Or if you're having lunch with him, you just didn't want the lunch to end because it was just so pleasurable. But in general, it's just you're just trying to get what you need, just like you did, you know, in, in the locker room, you know, holding a tape recorder up to someone's mouth. You just want to get that quote you need for your story. And really beyond that, you're not looking to, to spend any extra time with these people. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who watches way too much reality TV in her spare time. So Catherine, what are you watching lately? Oh, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, The Real Housewives of New York, you know, and Teen Mom. 
I have an idea for a new reality show. Can I throw it at you? Sure. Okay. So we follow around this really smart, really handsome host of a writing podcast as he gives a throwback sports merchandise company free advertising in exchange for T-shirts, hats, and jerseys just because he loves their products so much. That's ridiculous. Nobody would believe that. You just finished watching a show where a wealthy 80-year-old widow married a 22-year-old janitor because they shared true love. That's believable. Ugh, forget it. True Riders Sling and Yang is sponsored by 503 Sports, which sells the most amazing throwback sports gear. USFL, XFL, World Football League, minor league baseball and hockey, all handcrafted and at amazing prices. And I do, in fact, have them sponsor this show in exchange for merchandise because I love the product so much. So be like me, Jeff Perlman, and visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to save 10% off your first purchase. Uh, your book, which you just alluded, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. So I am, uh, I spent much of my life explaining to mainly other men of, of my age sort of demographic that I've never seen Caddyshack. And the reaction I always Have get, you still not seen it? No, I haven't seen it. But um, Okay. But I have read a big chunk of your book. And now I, I feel okay. like I need, I feel like I need to see it. Um, okay. I'm going to, I mean, I'll start with a really lame and sort of broad question, but it's such a specific topic for a book you know it's not like yeah. it's not like you're writing about a generation of movies or blah 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 sort of literally the making of caddyshack which means mm-hmm. in order for someone to buy your book they almost certainly had to have seen caddyshack which means you're writing for yeah. a pretty narrow audience um why did you write it well all right so that's a multi-part question first of all i can't believe you've never seen this movie i know um it's uh it's i in 2010 it was the movie's 30th anniversary. And uh, Sports Illustrated, which I occasionally write for, um, they were doing you know, their annual Where Are They Now issue. And so they said, can you write a story about the making of Caddyshack? So I said, sure. And I started talking to Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and Harold Ramis. And, and um, the more I talked to these guys, it was just like, you know, I love the movie. I've seen the movie a lot, but like the making of the movie was a million times better than the movie itself. I mean, it was like a recipe in how not to make a movie. Uh, these people had like no experience. Um, they were just running wild on the set in Florida. Uh, you know, there was no studio oversight. They're young, they're partying. I mean, a lot of cocaine, ton of cocaine. Uh, the stories were just epic. And it just felt like, um, you know, this was, the, I wrote a five or six page story for SI and it was just like, there was so much stuff, great stuff that I didn't use um, that I was like, this is, this could be a bigger thing if I really reported it out. And, um, and so I did. And, and I really, the book is, is, 60% about the making of Caddyshack and the other 40% is sort of how comedy in Hollywood was changing in that decade between 1970 and 1980. So it's, it's got a lot of like the National Lampoon and, and Animal House and Saturday Night Live and Second City. And you sort of see how it all comes together on this one movie. Um, so, you know, it just felt like a bigger story than just the one movie. But I do agree with you that, that it, you know, it certainly is targeting an audience um, I think is big. I think like there are a lot of men between, you know, 25 and 65 who really love this movie. Um, but, but you're right. It's, it is, it is sort of targeted. Well, I just want to say, cause I, I, I almost feel like I just shit on your idea. And I actually think it's a, number one, 
I think it's a really smart idea for a book. And number two, again, <laughs> I've never seen this movie, but I find it wildly entertaining. Like, um, just the very, like... Who doesn't want to read cocaine stories? Well, cocaine stories, but also, like, the, the idea of Rodney Dangerfield literally having no idea how to act. Like, just not yeah. knowing how to be an actor in and of itself, um, I thought was just fantastic. And... Um, yeah, just the, the dynamics between these guys is really, really sort of interesting. And, and it must have filled up your notebook. I mean, it's just really ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it, was, it, was, it was just so much fun. And, and um, you know, uh, interviewing Bill Murray was like a bucket list thing to begin with. And, and, and you know, just like, the, like you mentioned, like the tensions that, you know, Bill Murray hated Chevy Chase when they shot the movie. Ted Knight hated Ronnie Dangerfield when they made the movie. You know, there was like all of these subplots and weird, you know, uh, just frictions and everything that it just, it gave the story so much drama. And, um, I really think it's, it's about more than, and just that movie. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's in a way, uh, a, a metaphor for that whole decade, that whole sort of crazy decade in Hollywood. So, um, anyway, that's, that's, that's why I was into it. I just want to say when I was, um, I spent one year after I left SI writing long features for Newsday. And um, it was a pretty sweet job, actually. It was like two stories a month, really long pieces. Oh, it was pretty great. It doesn't heaven. exist anymore. It yeah. doesn't exist. And um, they told me uh, Rodney Dangerfield is in town promoting his autobiography. And do you want to go yeah. talk to him? Sure. So I go, to the, uh, I go to the Omni in New York City. He has a penthouse suite. I walk in. <sighs> the door is open. He is naked. His robe is wide open. He's wearing a robe, but it's wide open. Everything hanging out. Right. And he's smoking yeah. a joint. That was my introduction to Rodney is. Dangerfield. Um, yeah, God just, bless him. God bless him. I agree. I, I might have had the last, if I didn't have the last ever interview with Rodney Dangerfield, I definitely had the last naked interview with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to say you wrote something, I, again, not, not to like, not to stroke your ego here, but you're a really freaking great writer. And you wrote something in your book. I, it was a, just a paragraph that I thought was really beautiful. And you, you wrote about a scene between uh, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. And you wrote, um, if you look at that scene today, if you squint hard enough, you can see two men rooting up years of bruised egos and wounded pride. It isn't just two SNL stars ad-libbing about grass you can smoke, chinch bugs, and getting, and getting weird. They're exercising years of perceived slights. It's a therapy session disguised as a two-handed comedy jag. This one four-minute moment, would finally be the thing to thaw the off-screen iciness between them. Now, how do you – does that come from interviewing the two guys and them talking about the scene? Does it come just from observing the scene and knowing film? Yeah, I mean, I think a little of both. Uh, you know, I, they – for you know, the people who don't know, I mean, those two coming into this movie, they – Chevy Chase was, was the, the breakout star of the first season of Saturday Night Live, and he moved on you know, to, to Hollywood to have a film career. And Bill Murray was his replacement in the cast. And they, you know, there was this lingering sense of resentment among the SNL cast members who, didn't, you know, who were still around, like Belushi, um, after Chevy left, that Chevy you know, had gotten a swollen ego and got a little too big for him, his britches or whatever. And so when Chevy came back to guest host in 1978 – um, Bill Murray as the new guy sort of felt like it, it was his job to be the Avenger. And so the two of them got into an actual fist fight 
backstage before Chevy delivered his monologue. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when they go down to Florida to film this movie, in the original script, they didn't have any scenes together. And everyone was sort of walking on eggshells, sort of wondering how this would go. You know, these two guys hate each other. How is this all going to work out? And then, you know, it, it didn't present itself as an issue until the studio said, we really want to see with these two guys together because it makes no sense to have a movie with these two huge stars and not have them in at least one scene together. So they improvised this scene together and, and it really became um, a metaphor. You know what I mean? You have to, and this is sort of the film critic hat you put on uh, that goes beyond reporting. You have to sort of look at what's going on in the movie beyond what's going on in the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it sort of you have to sort of take into account all of the external stuff that that's happening um, in this scene. And, and both of those guys told me, you know, like we did not know how the, how this scene was going to go. And, and, and they just decided that they would try to make each other laugh. And, and you can really see them trying not to break in that scene. And, and to me, that is, Amazing that you can go from in the course of a year from a fist fight to almost making this guy laugh during a take. It just it felt like a bigger moment than the actual scene in the movie. Was it easy to get these guys to agree to interviews? And did you do them in person or on the phone? Uh, I did most of them on the phone. Um, you know, uh, there were some that were trickier than others. Bill Murray, for sure, is the hardest. You know. Uh, so how did you get Bill Murray to this talk? Is, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a story. I mean, Bill Murray, does, unlike everyone else in Hollywood, does not have the usual sort of publicity machinery that most actors and directors have. He doesn't have an agent. He doesn't have a publicist. He doesn't have anyone you can call up and say, like, hey, I'd like to interview your client. Um, what he does have, uh, did you know about this, this 1-800 number, Bill no. Murray's 1-800 number? No. Um, it's the only way to get in touch with him. He's got a 1-800 number, um, and, and you call it, whether you're a reporter looking for an interview or if you're a director and you want to be in your movie. You have to call this 1-800 number, and there's no outgoing message, just a beep, and you're basically auditioning for Bill Murray to like have him call you back, and he may call you back, and he may not. And if he does call you back, it could be in a week, it could be in a month, it could be in a year. You just don't know. He's just a, this magnificent flake. And... Um, you know, I left a message every day for about a month, uh, you know, and, and some were annoying, I'm sure. And some I tried to be funny, which is probably even more annoying. And, and, and it was, it was hard and I wasn't hearing from him and I got a book to write and I really need this guy to, to, to call me back. And so, uh, eventually I, I had a mutual friend, um, Elvis Mitchell, who sort of knows Bill, Bill Murray a little bit and he used to be the New York Times film critic. Um, he's, he's a friend and he, he left a message for Bill saying like, you know, you can trust this guy, you give him a call, blah, blah, blah. And finally, one night, just I'm in the office late and the phone rings um, about a month after I put in the request and it's got a South Carolina prefix on the phone and I pick it up and I'm like, could it be? Please, please. And I pick it up and it's, you know, if from a lifetime of watching movies, you know the voice instantly. Yeah. Um, and he was great. You know, he, the problem with Bill Murray isn't getting a great interview. The problem is getting the interview to begin with. Did once you, you, interview him, him, you interviewed him right then at that moment? Yeah, yeah, and I wasn't ready at all. But, you know, I, I, I keep my tape recorder hooked up to my phone. And, you know, luckily I was working late that night because if I wasn't there, I don't know if he would have called back a second time. 
Um, and he, you know, he was happy to talk as long as I wanted. He, it was weird because I didn't expect him to necessarily want to talk about this silly comedy from the beginning of his career, you know, and I didn't know if he'd want to do that. And, and, and he, he did because Caddyshack, I think he realizes a is really important to sort of how his career happened and B it's a really sort of personal story for him and his brother, Brian, you know, was one of the writers of the script and is also in the movie. Um, you know, Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny, the other co-writers were like people that he looked up to in comedy at the time. Uh, it, it, and it, a lot of it is based on the caddying stories that the Murray, Murray boys, you know, that came from their lives when they were kids. They, they grew up as blue collar kids just north of Chicago and to earn money for Jesuit school, they would, they would caddy during the summers, you know, and, and a lot of these stories that are in the movie came from actual Murray brothers experiences. So he was, once you got him, he was great, but he was really the white whale. So you did not interview him for the SI story that you wrote. I did. Yeah, I did. That's, that's when I did the interview. Oh, okay. So what did you do? Most there was, of, go ahead. Most of the interviews you did for SI at first. Well, I, I got everyone else back on the phone. Murray is the only one I didn't get back on the phone. The good news is, is that I only used three quotes from Murray's original interview in the SI piece. And so I had, you know, an hour and a half of, of unused stuff that I could tap back into. I'm going to ask you a weird question um, because it's something I've gone through a million times. You've probably gone through a million times and I always struggle with a little, which is you get someone on the phone. You've been waiting for this call. You know, like I have this with books all the time. You're waiting for this call. You get this guy on the phone. Um, you have a million things you want to ask him. You could talk to him for five hours. How long is it okay to keep him on the phone? And do you need to read sign? Like, are you trying to read when he's trying to get you off the phone? Like, how do you know when to give up on the phone call and when to keep it going? Yeah, I mean, I go until I'm, I'm I, I push as hard as I can. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always like, all right, like if you can sense them getting sort of antsy on the other end after, you know, let's yeah. say 45 minutes and you have like, you know, two more pages of questions. Um, I hate that moment. Be, I hate that moment. It's, it's the worst. Yeah. I mean, that is like flop sweat. That is just, that is just panic attack time. And, and, you know, I think you have to immediately scan your, scan your notes and, and find the two questions that are essential and ask those. And once you've got those, you have to be like, listen, I know you, I, I've used up a lot of your time. I know you've been so great. Thank you so much. I have a few more questions. Is there any way we can get back on the phone another day at your convenience? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, to me, the, the worst part um, is – and this has only happened a couple of times. I, I am curious if it's ever happened to you is if you've interviewed someone and you, when it's over, you, you listen to the tape recorder and it's just blank. Oh yeah. I haven't had it happen that many have times, you, but I have had that happen. Have you? And so what do you do? What do you, yeah, I have. And it's, it's happened a couple of times and I, you know, I've had to like have to do a, the interview again and you can just, the answers they give you the second time are never as good as they were the first time. And they're sort of ticked off. And, and what did you, what did you, what happens when it happens to you? All right. The first thing I do is I go like this, fucking fuck, fuck. Then right, right. <laughs> I'm sure you say some very, uh, I do punch all on something. And then, um, I will never admit, I don't think I've ever admitted that I deleted or blew the interview. I would say, you know, can I ask you a few more questions? 
do you mind if I give you a right. call back? I miss a few things. And then I would try re-asking the same things I asked. I hate, it's the that's, worst. That's good. That's the worst. It's um, the worst feeling in the world. Oh my God. When you, when you start an interview with a guy like Bill Murray or whoever, when you have him on the phone, are you, are you building up? Like, are you unloading your best questions at the beginning or are you, are you throwing a few softballs first before you got to dig a little deeper? Uh, you gotta always, I, you gotta kick it off with a couple of softballs, I think. Um, and especially if, you know, you, you've got questions that are difficult or like legal things, um, you know, or especially maybe like drug things, I think you really want to save the tough stuff for the end. And, and hopefully you've, you've built up some sort of rapport that they're a little bit more honest with you at the end. And, and maybe you, you, they kind of like you a little bit, hopefully, and they're willing to answer questions that they might not have right off the bat. Um, you definitely want to save the tougher stuff for the end. Yeah, interesting. Were they were these guys? If they get, they, no, go ahead. Yeah, well, because if they get insulted and they hang up, at least you've got something, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, were the uh, were these guys willing to talk cocaine? Was that a willing conversation? Yeah, surprisingly, I, you know, I was a little shocked, frankly. I mean, I guess it's it's been long enough that whatever statute of limitations is uh, there was on this stuff has expired. So um, I think they, you know, they sort of see it as as uh, their carefree youth, and they're happy to reminisce about it. I think if you would ask them about it, you know, at the time they were actually making the movie or shortly after it came out, they would have been, you know, a lot more discreet about it. But um, not everyone goes into the same depth about it, but, but certainly, you know, enough people were willing to go on the record and talk about, um, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that people told me that I couldn't, you know, yeah. get from the horse's mouth or I couldn't get confirmation on that. I, you know, that are great stories, but I can't, you know, can't use them because you don't want to get into any sort of legal trouble, but I think there's enough juicy cocaine stories in the book to, to keep everyone happy. Right. Um, did you feel like you needed to do large amounts of cocaine to sort of understand what your your you know your subjects were going through? Well, I had a publisher who was very forgiving, and they built that into the budget. They were like, <laughs> "We'll give you no." I, I, I don't. I don't think that you need to. They, they no, basically no. But um, I, I think I would have blown the whole the whole advance if that were the case, and, yes. and that was not going to happen. Right. Let me let me throw one more film related general question. Do you um do you ever get tired of going to movies? Are you ever like uh fifth movie in five days? I don't. I could do without this. Or no? Not real. I mean, it's it's pretty. It's a pretty cushy gig. It's hard to like really complain about it. Uh, you know, there are definitely times when, um, you know, the hardest I would say is when you're at a film festival. Let's say like you're going to Sundance or something, okay, and you got to see you're there for eight days, let's say, and you, and you, you're seeing four or five movies a day. It's just like, you know, by the time the fifth one rolls around, you're just sort of like, Oh, I'm just so done. Um, but in general, you got to keep in mind that like, it's, it's like being a sports reporter, but let's say you're, you know, the beat writer for the Mets, you know, I mean, if you're sitting up in the press box, you know, eating free hot dogs and watching a ball game, that's, it, no one's gonna, no one's gonna listen to you complain. You know, it, it, you really can't. Um, I, I, it, the hardest part is really like, you know, if I have a date night with my wife and we want to go to the movies, I've seen everything, so it's it's sort of difficult. I always say nobody, you are not allowed to complain about this job 
to anyone who doesn't work in the profession. Like I can complain to you, you can complain to me. Nobody right. wants to hear me complaining about having to write whatever, a book or going to a Mets game, like you said. And no one wants to hear you complaining about having to go see some Michael Bay movie. That you're not going to get any sympathy. Absolutely. Right. It's really interesting. No. Yeah. Um, let me throw a final question at you. I have a, uh, <clears throat> I have a film disagreement with you, and I'm going to bring it forward. Okay. Yep. Okay. You reviewed Patty Cakes, and you gave it an OKB. Okay yeah. I saw, so I saw Patty Cakes, like many people, I've got to say, because I've had this conversation on an airplane. I didn't know the movie existed. I was flying. And there it was on United, and I was like, oh, I got nothing better to do. And I've had this conversation probably four or five other people who saw Patty Cakes on an airplane and have said to me, have you seen Patty Cakes? The actress, Danielle McDonald, who played the, the lead role of the, the rapper, is an mm-hmm. Aust- Australian 23-year-old who never even listened to hip-hop. And now she's playing a Jersey aspiring hip-hop artist rapping well with a Jersey accent. Yeah. I saw that movie and I thought, I got to think this woman gets some Academy Award consideration. And you didn't seem that impressed by her performance. You were like, yeah, hey, it was good, but you know, blah, blah, blah. Tell me what I was missing. Uh, no, I, I, was, I was totally impressed by her performance. I was not impressed with, with the movie itself. Um, and, and by the way, a B is a pretty decent grade. Is that what I gave it a B? Yeah, you gave it a B. I get, maybe, maybe I'm thinking yeah. of B as a parent of my kid bringing home a B. That's a fair... Right, right. No, no, it's, it's, it was fine. I think, look, I think two things come into play on that. I, I do think she was really great, and it's a great acting performance. Um, here's the thing. I thought the movie was just loaded with cliches. Yeah, that is true. And not, not her, just the, the, the plot was just loaded with cliches. And B, I saw that movie at Sundance, and I, I, this is part of, you know, this is not, this is a problem on, on my part that, that shouldn't find its way into review. Uh, this is a bit of a mea culpa. There was so much, that movie played, the first time it played, all the critics who saw that movie were like, oh my God, this movie's great. You have to see this movie. It was like the buzz title of that day at Sundance. And so expectations were super high. And so I go to see it at the second screening. And it was good, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like, it didn't change my life. You know what I mean? I remember when I saw at Sundance, I was at the first screening ever for the Blair Witch Project. And, and at that point, no one knew if it was like a documentary or an actual found footage or like what it was. No one knew anything about it. And I thought it was the most terrifying thing I had ever seen. I thought it was real and just like all of that. And so I thought it was great. And I wrote a review about how great it was. But I could definitely see someone I want to thank today's to guest, Danny Wallace, later, for joining me on Two Riders like, Singing Yang. Yeah, you can follow Danny scary. on Twitter, at um, Danny Wallace. So I think that and by Effie very much, pretty much everywhere. The podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback time. sports People merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. I'm sorry we disagree on that. Two Riders Singing Yang on iTunes. And reviews are always appreciated. Music is from the great MC Wilde. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, my all-time favorite favorite movie is the cable guy and i feel like that generally damages my, <laughs> that damages my reputation as a critic so what can i tell you there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that there's you know i, I actually uh one I, I i have a real sweet tooth for crappy movies and and um <laughs> you know i i often tell people that like i really love you know jean claude van damme's time cop or like you know just i just have really weird tastes and um uh, and so, yeah, I mean, look, if, if you love Cable Guy, God bless, you know, I, it's, it's one man's time cop is another man's Cable Guy.
Is there a factually bad? Is there such thing as a factually bad movie? A factually bad movie? Yeah. Is like there, an empirically, like that movie is poorly, like it's just that a is just a bad movie. movie. That's a bad movie under, like not. This is not just my opinion. This is a bad movie, or this is not my opinion. This is a great movie. It's not opinion. It is fact. Does that exist or no? I, I think so. Sure. Yeah. I, I think so. Um, but. I mean, like, you know, I'll review these, these Adam Sandler movies that he makes for Netflix that are, like, not even, like, his best work. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, this is, like, sub Adam Sandler stuff that he's just, like, cleaning out his drawer and he, he finds a script and he does it for Netflix so they give him a ton of money. And, 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 you know, I think those are factually, empirically bad movies on any grading scale. But you'll write that review and you'll write a slam and you, I guarantee you there'll be 15 people when you scroll down to the bottom review on EW.com that'll be like, you're insane, this movie's great, what are you talking about, you're a moron, how did you get this job, you're an idiot. I mean, it's just like, no one, if you hate a movie and you think it's factually bad, there will be a hundred people who, who will disagree with you, so... I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I've never met a person who did not like Shawshank. Yeah. I, I feel that way about Jaws too. It's like, we, no one doesn't like it. Yeah. Well, Chris, listen, this has been uh, fantastic. Very enlightening. And um, because of you, I am pledging within the next month to see Caddyshack, but not Caddyshack 2, just Caddyshack. <laughs> okay. Well, that, by the way, Caddyshack 2 is, an, is a factually bad movie. Oh, there you go. Um, so, uh, well, let me know what you think about it. I'm very curious to, to hear. Uh, I, I can't believe it's, it's taken you so long to see it, but, but I am curious to see what you think. All right, will do. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this, Chris. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It was fun. All right, take care. I want to thank today's guest, Chris Nashawadi, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Nashawadi and read his stuff in EW. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. My upcoming book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. One can listen to True Writers Singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.